0: As I walk through this wicked world searching for light in the darkness of insanity, I ask myself, is all hope lost? Is there only pain and hatred and misery? And each time I feel like this inside, there's one thing that I want to know. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Some of you know that these are the lyrics to a song from the 70s that was made famous by the great Elvis Costello. And you might not think that this is a Christmas song, but in 2008 it was sung as a group number at the end of the Comedy Central special, A Colbert Christmas which won a Grammy for Best Comedy Album, and so then it became a Christmas song. And I know that Stephen Colbert is not an authority on all things Christmas, but to his credit, peace, love, and understanding are assuredly Christmas themes. And for the last few weeks, I've had that question stuck in my head. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? To talk about peace, love, and understanding in a world at war often feels like a sick joke. This year, hundreds of thousands of people have died in wars taking place in Ukraine, Maghreb, Ethiopia, Myanmar, Sudan, and now Palestine. And that's just the ones that have been declared. There have also been regional conflicts and gang violence and insurgencies and ongoing civil disputes in nations around the globe that have cost thousands more lives. And before we project all our empathy abroad, we must take stock of the reality that there have been 558 mass shootings in America this year. An average of almost two per day. Over 25,000 people have been killed from gun-related deaths so far, and firearms are once again the leading cause of death in children, surpassing deaths from car accidents in each of the last three years. There's a Bruce Springsteen song with the lyrics, 41 Shots, and we'll take that ride. Cross the bloody river to the other side. 41 Shots, cut through the night. You're kneeling over his body, praying for his life. Is it a gun? Is it a knife? Is it a wallet? This is your life. It ain't no secret. No secret, my friend, you can get killed just for living in your American skin. And yet, amazingly, this is too limited an understanding of violence for the world we live in. As Coretta Scott King once said, I must remind you that starving a child is violence. Neglecting school children is violence. Punishing a mother and her family is violence. Discrimination against a working man is violence. Ghetto housing is violence. Ignoring medical needs is violence. Contempt for poverty is also violence. The child poverty rate in America has doubled last year, from 5.2 to 12.4%. And in a report entitled, The Human Cost of Inaction, Poverty, Social Protection, and Debt Servicing, the United Nations found that globally, 165 million people fell into poverty between 2020 and 2023. Injustices in education, worker rights, housing, and medical care are vast. We could speak at length on all the ways in which our system of greed is bearing down on the poorest and most vulnerable in our world. So how dare we? talk of peace in a world at war in a nation of violence in an age of premature death perhaps we should pose that question to the author of the gospel of luke Because Luke was written in the aftermath of one of the most brutal wars in the history of the Middle East, the Jewish war with Rome that included the raising of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the exile of the people in 70 AD. Yet somehow Luke is also the gospel with the most comprehensive vision of peace. How can these two things be true? In fact, one could argue that for Luke, the gospel is the good news of peace. Peace in a world at war, in a nation of violence, in an age of premature death, peace. And Luke's gospel is not subtle about peace either, or the fact that the peace of God, Jesus, and the Spirit are in direct contrast to the peace of Rome, of Caesar of the empire, of the famous Pax Romana that we all learned about in Western civilizations, class in high school and in college. Some of you can probably quote me the entire Wikipedia entry on the Pax Romana. It was a golden age in Rome, a 200-year period of unprecedented peace and prosperity spanning from England to Morocco, ushered in by the great Caesar Augustus, or so we're told. People believed it was a miracle that Caesar brought about through divine power. But in truth, the Pax Romana was not peaceful for anyone but the Roman elites. One historian wrote, the volume of the Cambridge ancient history for the years 80, 70 to 192 is called the Pax Romana, but peace is not what one finds in the pages. Another one wrote, the Pax Romana is a difficult subject for research, but a simple formula for propaganda. Even Rome's own historians critique the Pax Romana. Tacitus, for example, quoted a speech from the Scottish general Calgacus where he said, These Romans are the plunderers of the world. After exhausting the land by their devastating hands, they are now rifling the ocean, stimulated by avarice and greed. If their enemy be rich, by ambition, if poor, unsatiated by either the East or the West, they are the only people who behold wealthy and indigent lands with equal avidity to plunder butcher and steal under false titles these things they call empire they make a desert and they call it peace the leveling of jerusalem the destruction of the temple the diaspora of all the people happened in the middle of the pax romana in the words of the prophet jeremiah the romans cried peace peace when there was no peace The Pax Romana is not just imperial propaganda, it was a sick joke. While there may have been peace for the Roman elite, there was no peace for the people of Israel, only war and violence, destruction and death. Now as a child in Sunday school, precocious children would always ask the same question. Why was Jesus born in 3 AD and not some other time in human history? And the teachers would try their best to answer this question. And they would say what they had been taught by the Sunday school literature. Because during the Pax Romana, the world was situated in just the perfect way for the spread of the gospel and the growth of Christianity. I thought that was ridiculous. But the gospel of Luke would agree with my Sunday school teachers at least 50%. Luke would say yes. The Pax Romana was the perfect time for Jesus to be born, not because it was a great time of peace, but because there was no peace at all. Luke believed Jesus was born during the peace of Rome to show the world that war can't bring peace. Caesar can't bring peace. Empires can't bring peace. Only God can bring true peace. This is why Luke took all that imperial propaganda that was being used for Caesar and the Pax Romana and appropriated it and applied it subversively to Jesus and the kingdom of God. Luke stole those words like Lord and Savior and Son of God and good news from the imperial language of the day and took it out of the halls of Roman power and put it on the road to Galilee. He took the words out of the pretentious decadence of Caesar's palace and put it inside the house of a peasant family in Palestine. And to a people who've suffered under Roman occupation for generations and experienced the complete destruction of Israel at the hands of the Roman legions just 10 years before Luke's gospel was written, Luke said to the people, all those things you've heard about Caesar and Rome, all those things are really about Jesus and the kingdom. All your hopes and dreams for peace will not be found in violence or empire. All your hopes and dreams for peace can only be found in God and what God is doing in the world. There's a reason Luke starts the Christmas story with the census that was imposed by Caesar Augustus in 6 CE. In seminary, I was told that the census never happened. I had to get out of seminary to find out that it actually did happen. Seminary professors are not always right about these things. The census did happen in 6 CE and it caused a lot of trouble. It was Jewish resistance to that very census that historians like Josephus believed led directly to the Jewish war with Rome and the destruction of Jerusalem 60 years later. The revolutionary, Judas the Galilean, who you've heard me mention before, and his followers strongly encouraged their fellow Jews not to register in the census and refused to pay taxes to Rome. Judas and his children, of course, were eventually captured and executed by the Romans, but we have to understand this context that in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem, that Luke, this author, was using the census and the Jewish war as the bookends for the story of Jesus. And why? To proclaim to Jews and to Romans that there was another way, a way of peace and not of war and hostility. There's the way of Caesar, the way of Judas, and the way of Jesus. There's the way of imperial violence, the way of revolutionary violence, and then there's the way of peace, a third way, a new alternative. And for Luke, this way of peace was not an idealistic pipe dream or the promise of a heavenly paradise when we die. Peace was a real, viable, human possibility taking on flesh in the first century world amid the horrors of the Pax Romana at the height of revolutionary activity in Jewish history. Between the census and the Jewish war, God offered a way of peace to the world in the person and the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. It was a way of peace that many people in the world missed or dismissed or rejected and the empire crucified. But nonetheless, it was a real alternative. On November 2nd, the National Book Award winner and MacArthur Genius Grant recipient tanahasi Coates was interviewed on Democracy Now! about a trip that he'd recently taken to Palestine and how it changed his life. He said, in all that I've read about Israel and the conflict with the Palestinians, there's a word that keeps coming up all the time, complexity. So what I expected to find when I got there was a situation in which it's hard to discern right from wrong, to understand the morality at play, to understand the conflict. But perhaps, he said, the most shocking thing was I immediately understood what was going on over there and how uncomplicated it really is. The way this is reported, he said, in the Western media is as if one needs a PhD in Middle Eastern studies to understand the basic morality of holding a people in a situation in which most do not have any basic rights, including the rights we treasure most, the franchise, the right to vote, and then declaring that state a democracy. He said it's not hard to understand, he said it's actually quite familiar to those of us who know anything about African American history in the United States. When the commentators then asked Coates what should be done in Palestine, he said, this is really personal for me. He said, I grew up in a time and in a place where I did not really understand the ethic of nonviolence. And by ethic, I mean the notion that violence is itself corrupting, that it corrupts our souls, He said, I didn't quite understand that, and if I'm truly honest with you, as much as I saw my relationship with the Palestinian people, it was at the same time clear that I had some sort of relationship with the Jewish people too, and it wasn't one that I particularly enjoyed because I understood the rage that comes when you have a history of oppression. He said, I understand the anger. I understood the sense of humiliation that comes when people subject you to manifold oppression, to genocide, and people look away from that while it's happening to you. He said, I come from the descendants of 250 years of enslavement. He said, I come from a people where sexual violence has marked their very bones and DNA. He said, and I understand when you feel that the world has turned its back on you, how you can then turn your back on the ethics of the world. But then he said, but I also understood how corrupting that can be. He told this story. He said, I was listening to my congressman talk on the news, and a journalist asked him, how many children must be killed to justify this operation, this occupation? Is there an upper limit for number, the number of people killed when you'd say, this is just too much. We're, we're at a limit here where we have to stop. Coates said, but the congressman couldn't give a number. He said, and I thought, that man has been corrupted. That man has lost himself. He's lost himself in humiliation. He's lost himself in vengeance. He's lost himself in violence. Coates went on to say, I think it's very important to talk about the force of anti-Semitism in history and in American history, that's a very real thing. And I don't think you can understand the events of this moment without that, but we also have to stand on some principle. He said, if I'm a late comer to the Palestinian cause, I'm also a latecomer to the cause of nonviolence. He said, but I'm here now. And knowing what nonviolence has meant to our history, there's no way in the world that we can leverage the memory of Dr. King and the weight and ancestry of that movement in defense of a war or in defense of indiscriminate bombings on refugee camps. We just can't do that, he said. We would be a disgrace to our ancestors. And I heard Tanahasi Coates give this interview, and I thought, "Hmm, if a man whose ancestors were brutalized for hundred years can come to believe in the ethic of nonviolence, then what's my excuse? If he can come to that, then I think we all need to question why we would ever think that violence... Is the answer to anything. Coates is right, violence is corrupting. It causes us to surrender to vengeance, to perpetuate the never-ending cycle of hostility, to lose sight of our humanity, to lose our true selves. But to abandon the way of peace is also to abandon the gospel and to abandon the way of Jesus. When the angel with a multitude of the heavenly host appeared to the shepherds, bringing good news of great joy to all people, they sang this song, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to all people. Peace is the message of the angels, the reason for the season, the true meaning of Christmas, the good news of great joy. It's the entirety of the gospel in one word. And did you notice later in Luke, when Jesus healed people, he said the same thing every time, go in peace. He sent his disciples into the world with these instructions. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. And if anyone there shares peace, your peace will rest on that person. And if not, it will return to you. And as Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, people sang a song in Luke they didn't sing in the other gospels. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in the highest heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And when Jesus came near to Jerusalem, he stopped for a moment, and he wept for it. And he said, if only you had recognized on this day, Jerusalem, the things that make for peace. And then, when the risen Jesus returned to the disciples who had betrayed and abandoned and denied him, the first thing he said to them in the Gospel of Luke is, peace be with you, peace. The gospel is about peace. Good news is peace. Anything other than peace is not the gospel. Anything other than peace is not the good news. And it's certainly not the good news that is great joy for all God's people. So whenever we say Merry Christmas this year, remember that you're saying peace on earth. Goodwill to all people. Whenever you're saying Merry Christmas, remember you're saying peace on this house. Whenever you're saying Merry Christmas, you're saying peace be with you, peace with your family, peace in the Middle East, peace in America, peace in the streets. But it's not enough just to say those words, is it? We have to learn the things that make for peace. When Zechariah sang his song that you heard at your reading today, he knew that God's ultimate vision for the world was peace and that his son, John the Baptist, would prepare the way for peace by giving people knowledge and forgiveness and mercy and light and life and justice and liberation. He knew his son's calling and purpose on the earth was to guide our feet into the way of peace, the way of Jesus with all the things that make for peace. Preparing for peace requires the work. We usually call it the work of repentance, the word of John the Baptist. But when we say repentance, we mean the work of repairing our hearts. Repairing our hearts from the corrupting force and influence of violence and the way it corrupts, the way we think, the way we feel. It's the work of stretching out our hearts, stretching them back into shape. Letting our hearts grow bigger and softer for other people in the world, even for our enemies. Like the Grinch on Christmas morning. There's a moral to that story. I don't know if you... Our hearts need to grow three sizes each Christmas. And our world needs more people like Tanahasi Coates and John the Baptist and even the Grinch whose hearts are growing, who've been converted to the ethic of love and nonviolence. We need more people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Vincent Harding, Bob Moses and Dorothy Day, Mahatma Gandhi and Thich Nhat Hanh, people who guide our feet into the way of peace. We still need that guidance because we're so far off the path right now, we can barely see the way of peace from where we are. But there's always hope we can get back on the path if we're willing to do the work of letting our hearts grow larger and softer and live the gospel of peace every day by interrupting the never-ending cycles of violence with the power of love. James Baldwin wrote, love has never been a popular movement. He said, our world is held together really held together by the love and passion of very few people. What kind of people are we? We are people who are moving through a wicked world, searching for light in the darkness of insanity. We are asking ourselves, is all hope lost? Is there only pain and hatred and misery? But each time we feel like that inside, there's one thing we should all want to know and that's what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding. Peace is no joke. Love is no joke. Understanding is no joke. It's what we need if the followers of Jesus and the church can't be people of peace and love and understanding, then let's call the whole thing off because that's the whole shooting match. That's the whole kit and caboodle, the whole ball of wax. Peace is everything. Like Jesus and John, it is both our mission and our ministry our meaning and our purpose, our identity and our calling to follow Jesus, to spend our lives actively interrupting the never-ending cycles of violence in our world, wherever they appear, in our homes, in our hearts, in our churches, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our streets, in our cities, in our states, in our nations, at the Capitol buildings, in the courthouses, everywhere in our world. Peace is not a silent state that comes upon us from within, serene, detached, oblivious. Peace is not a force like rain that comes unbidden from above, gentle, unfolding, natural. Peace is a fire. Peace is a fire. Peace is a passion. Peace requires a strength of will, a certain courage, a heart of iron, a force abiding to fulfill. Peace is not a foregone fate, for peace like war must be waged mindfully, deliberately, with arms ever ready and eyes wide open. So let the fire of peace burn inside your hearts this Advent season, softening and expanding them, filling us all with the passion and the strength and the courage and the power to open our arms and learn how to wage peace, mindfully, deliberately, Because the gospel is peace, and peace is what it means to be good news. Amen.